let's face it, there's a lot going on in the world right now, and it's really hard just keeping track of America alone. So, in case you missed it, I got together with a good friend of mine from the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's a senior studying architecture here at UC Berkeley, so give him a wave if you see him. His name is Dio, and here's what's going on in his home country. I hope you enjoy this podcast. This is the Bear Minds Podcast. Let's just talk about the facts of what's going on. Yeah. In Congo, there was supposed to be an election. We talked about it last time. Yeah. In December, right? December, to, uh, December 2016. Yes. 2016. Now it's June 2017. Mm-hmm. Election still hasn't happened. The opposition yeah. party leader has died mm-hmm. uh, of old age, mm-hmm. uh, as, far as, we, as far as we know. Yeah. Um, what does what does that mean? I mean, like, how 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 does the country move forward at this point? Yeah, so I think like since the death of um, Etienne Tshisekedi, um, I think things have been a little bit uh, more disturbed. And Etienne yeah. Tshisekedi is, is the, the opposition, opposi- yeah, opposition party leader. So uh, as you know, like, uh, I mean, uh, Etienne Tshisekedi used to be like uh, one of the greatest uh, opposition leader in the country because he's been opposing the people in power for a very long time, since the Mobutu time. And even when Kabila came into power, he was always kind of challenging him. And obviously, he was known to many people in the DR Congo. So he was very popular and a very influential guy. And because of that, so his death kind of, uh, uh, I won't say destroyed the opposition, but it makes it a little bit less uh, influential. So since his death, so we the his political party itself has started to kind of subdivide, and um, you know uh, they're starting to diverge in their opinions, and they're not as unified as they used to be under his leadership, you know. So what, what was the party that he was leading? He was uh, president of the UDPS. 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 How do you spell it? UDPS. UDPS. Yeah. What What does this? Uh uh, I'm not exactly sure, but <laughs> we can we can research. And Kabila is which Kabila is uh um so normally uh when he became there was a party called PPLD, and I think the party is still still there today, but there is um, uh, a movement so for the majority so la majorité présidentielle that's how we call it, so that's kind of well, where it belongs. So there's like many political parties that came together to support the president of the country. Okay. Yeah, so that's like the main big party that's controlled the Senate, the Parliament, and pretty much everything else in the country. I'm glad you brought up the Senate. Mm-hmm. How, like you told me, someone told me mm-hmm. that the Senate has grown uh, exponentially in the last few months, right? Uh, so the government has grown a lot. Uh, yeah, so because, uh, you know, like since we've been uh, having discussions about the elections and they wanted to find a deal, we've been switching ministers. I think this is the second that we've switched since we started, like, the, uh, since the parties uh, that had interest in that, like, started to talk, you know, on how they could actually lead us to peaceful elections. So we had uh, one uh, first prime minister, I think it was Sami Badibanga. He was uh, prime minister for a very short time, and then after that, we got a new prime minister who is actually from the party of uh, Etienne Tshisekedi. Mm. Yeah. So many people believe that under his leadership, for instance, that uh, that individual would have never joined the, um, the government of Kabila without them getting to um, 
to kind of uh, agreements on the elections, you know. Yeah, but now that the Chinese security has died, so, you know, they don't really have a clear leader, so... Is, is there another party that could potentially... Uh, so, uh, the biggest other opposition party at the time, I think, is the J- J- J7. And this is like, it, it's a party that was kind of, form- or I would say like a coalition that was formed. So, um, uh, close to when we were supposed to have the election. And that coalition actually kind of uh, includes different... Uh, opposition leaders that kind of came together and also people used to be in uh, the majority so they all came together and formed a party to kind of challenge the power in place to uh, challenge the Kabila yeah, Kabila, yeah Kabila institution yeah and that for that movement I think uh, if I'm not mistaken that they're supporting Moise Katumbi who is like the, the person they're pushing forward yeah but as I said last time well I don't know if I mentioned it last time but uh so, you know, after we, uh, we started hearing that we wouldn't have elections, uh, there were some kind of conflict between the Katanga government and Kinshasa. And the Katanga government was uh, led by Moïse Katumbi, mm. and he was kind of um, in disaccord um, with the president regarding the elections. So he also left the majority and joined the opposition and now is being pushed as the front runner for the twenty seventeen elections. If we do have elections in twenty seventeen, what are the odds of that? And who's who's in charge of trying to make make that happen? Is there an institution? So, uh, so the institution in charge of the elections is called the uh, CENI, which stands for Commission Electoral Independence or Independent Electoral Commission. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, if I if I was trying to translate it to, into English. Yeah, so that uh, commission is supposed to be an independent commission that actually take, t- takes care of the elections. So what they do is that they go and make sure that every citizen is registered and above 18 to vote for the elections. So actually that was uh, one of the arguments as of why we didn't organize elections in 2016. Because according to that commission, they needed to count, um, I mean, they needed to count um, everyone that turned 18 since the last elections, so they had to go in all the different provinces and recount the people. And of course, they also mentioned some budget issues, saying that they didn't have enough funds to actually get to do their job. This is which is this is that commission. Yeah, that commission. Yeah. Uh, and the government didn't say it officially, or the Kabila administration didn't say it officially, right? No, they didn't say it officially because there's. Uh, I mean, the the belief is that. Uh, uh, independent, the, the commission I was talking about is independent, mm-hmm. you know, so that's what is said by government people that it doesn't have direct ties with the Kabila administration. Yeah, I mean, at least that is the common, common belief. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. so, what's going on in Congo right now? I'm so, sure. right now, uh, there is a different set of issues. So, um, lately, so, um, there've been um, a lot of um, trouble in uh, Kasai province uh, so you know like um, because that um, there's like a group of um, uh, called rebels you know that's apparently are going against the government and people think I mean at least according to rumors is that these uh, insurgencies related to the elections so um, the leader of that um, of a village was killed and then his people went against the government, so they started fighting against government. 
and I guess the um, the um, tragedy here and also the the thing that has been going over the internet, you know, is the video that uh, was uh, shot by one of the one Congolese soldiers, you know, where they were pretty much exterminating people that were not armed, that were going against the government. Yeah. And this was in. This was in the Congo, in the Kasai province. In Kasai province. Yeah. So, like, when you watch the video, so you pretty much see like a uh, Congolese soldiers going like through. Um, through a forest, I mean, through uh, near a village, like walking on a, you know, beaten road, and suddenly they see people, you know, like running around. They didn't, they didn't have guns. They just, they were just wearing clothes and you know some uh, trees or I don't know, like, like camouflage. Yeah, like not exactly like, camouflage, but you know, like um, like improvised camouflage. Yeah, kind of improvised camouflage with some leaves and things like that, <laughs> and running around. And then the, um, um, the leader of the, the, that small group, that army, he just gave instructions to his soldiers to shoot and pretty much kill the people that were sitting there. So they exterminated them and once they get closer, you actually notice that these people were not armed at all. They didn't have any guns. And, um, uh, you know, many people wonder if the, that use of violence was really necessary to kind of deal with that problem. These were the rebels doing this? Uh, these were the the Congolese soldiers. The soldiers were doing this. Yeah. So the soldiers were were killing the people that I believe to be rebels. Oh. Yeah. And they were the people that. Were yeah, but them, they didn't, they didn't yeah. So those rebels were not armed. Wow. Yes, they didn't have any guns. This they was, yeah. Yeah, they were just kind of running around, you know, and not really attacking or posing any little threats to the military. Yeah, and following that incident, so the UN sent uh, a special mission to investigate the case. And that was also something that um, actually uh, made a lot of noise on the internet because the, the people that were sent by the UN mission were also killed in the Kasai. So they went to investigate the killings so, uh, and got into contact with the rebels. And there is a, I mean, and then those uh, people from the mission disappeared for a very, for some time, and people were wondering where they were. And finally, their bodies were discovered. And then later on, a video actually came out showing how they were executed yeah. by supposed rebel rebels. Oh my god! Yeah. So there's been a lot of things going on. You know, obviously, like we've had uh, many people fleeing the the Kasai and fleeing the eastern part and you know many people might not know but I think in the DR Congo we've had more people running outside of the country uh, so more people uh, running outside of the country as refugees more than people in Syria and Iraq combined see this is why it's an important problem that mm -hmm. we need to address yeah and there are even more uh, internally displaced people as well mm -hmm. yeah um, internally displaced people yeah so we have people usually rushing to big uh, to cities like Lubumbashi or Kinshasa, so those big cities because after they run away from the war, so the only place, I mean the places that are kind of uh, have kind of institutions that can kind of support them a little bit are those cities because in other places they're not really certain if they can find, you know, like a safe environment and if they will actually get to find a job to provide for themselves. And so when, they, when they actually get to these cities, mm -hmm. um, I don't know if you actually know, but how how likely is it for them to actually get a job and be able to settle down? 
Life. Yeah, so the job situation in my country in itself is kind of complicated because we don't really have, uh, you know, special institutions or statistics that kind of measure, you know, how many people are unemployed and things like that. So uh, many of the people, they kind of survive, you know, daily by doing their own kind of small business in a sense. Mm-hmm. So you have people selling coal, for, for instance, people selling vegetables and people selling a bunch of different things to kind of get by their days. Yeah, so that's how many people coming, you know, fleeing, uh, coming from villages and other places that are less developed, that kind of how they survive and also poor people. Yeah, so there's no, um, you know, like if we like strictly had to count people that are employed like in a service sector, they're not that many people. Also like the unemployment rates, if we were to count like people that actually work real jobs, it will be very high, probably like above 70%, I think. Because most of the people survive by themselves, you know, doing their own, their own things. You just figure out... You were yeah, saying something out. interesting, like... Actually, a lot of people from uh, mm-hmm. Solomon, right? He was saying mm-hmm. the same thing, like... He has never seen homeless people that... Uh, yeah. The way you see them in yeah. Turkey. Back in... Mm-hmm. Oh, one second. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, what? I mean, this is uh, kind of a tangent, and I want to go back mm-hmm. to the issue of refugees mm-hmm. in Congo, but also that's a, mm-hmm. uh, a serious problem in mm-hmm. America, is homelessness and the yeah. way they get treated, mm-hmm. and the way they act. Mm-hmm. And I always thought, I was under the impression, impression that that's sort of the life, the cards that they were dealt. Mm-hmm. Um, but it seems like there's a different narrative, uh, the way they deal with their lives, or able to deal yeah. with their lives, mm-hmm. uh, under, at least in Mali and, and mm-hmm. the Bubashi and Congo. Yeah, so I would say, like, uh, generally, like, in Africa, I guess, like, because of the way we kind of, uh, you know, developed, you know, and also, you know, going back to our roots, you know, we're usually, um, you know, we grew up, like, in communities. And usually for many people, so uh, then no homeless that are, exactly related to economical problem you know like most of homeless you know they become people become homeless maybe because they were kicked out of the house you know by the parents who believed that they were possessed by demons or they had witchcraft what? and things like that so a lot of kids get kicked out by their parents because of things like that and some actually have parents that died and you know so they end up in the street or they came they they ran from a war zone and came to the city and coming there they do not really have a close family member to them so they stay in the, in the street in a sense but the big difference between homelessness um, I mean in the United States and um, in, the, um, in the Congo like if I, uh, I may speak like uh, for my country is that uh, people look a little bit less I mean they look less miserable when you go back in Africa and I guess like this is because of the fact, you know, the, the way they kind of, uh, uh, you know, deal with, uh, you know, with the poverty, you know, being in the street and how they communicate with the people mm-hmm. and, you know, all the different things. And in many cases, you know, like homeless, they still manage to find something to eat. They still manage, you know, by doing some certain jobs, you know, like maybe working in a mine, working into construction you know, helping people park their car, cleaning cars and other things, they still manage to kind of find 
some kind of some money, you know, to kind of uh, survive and also keep the, themselves clean to a certain extension. There's no government... Uh, there is no government help. So we don't have like a welfare program or something like that. So like I said, you know, like most people in my country, they survive by themselves. So they do different kind of things just to survive daily. You know, they do not earn as much, you know, like they earn very little per day. But with the amount that they earn, they try to keep themselves alive, uh, paying for the children's school, you know, paying for the house and paying for many other things. Yeah. So many people actually, I would say, live daily. You know, not many people get to save money mm. and get to do other things with it. But like when you compare like in a level of, you know, how people actually look and how you see them. So there's a big uh, difference in images. You know, like here, homeless seem like very beaten. They, uh, I think they, they don't seem as approachable as in certain, I mean, in certain areas yeah. of Africa. That image yeah. of being dangerous or drug addicts or criminals mm-hmm. or alcoholics, mm-hmm. is that's not the case over there. Yeah, and usually a lot of the, uh, so when you see like a homeless that kind of look like um, homeless in, here in the way kind of they present themselves, at least the extreme cases that I've seen in Berkeley, so uh, most of the time, most of those people back home, they will have like a mental issue, mm-hmm. you know, like a real serious mental issue that has gone, you know, untreated. You know, that's when you see that level of um, kind of, um, you know, um, I don't know how you say that in English, but you know, like just the way you see them, that it makes you feel really, really bad, you know. Yeah, and we don't tend to see homeless that. Uh, above the age of 20, 20, you know, usually they are pretty young, like when you see homeless, like I said, like usually they'll be like kids that are really young uh-huh. and, um, you know, that got kicked out of the houses because of, you know, some pastor saying that the kid was possessed and that the kid was responsible for someone's death in the family, illness, you know, poverty and all those stuff. So people get kicked out of the houses because of that. That's another yeah. um, very foreign concept to me, mm-hmm. uh, is the belief in witchcraft, and mm-hmm. it's not just a s- like a small group of people. It's mm-hmm. uh, a lot of seemingly it's uh, mm-hmm. the majority of the country mm-hmm. uh, has this belief that witchcraft is real, mm-hmm. and a lot of people have actually experienced mm-hmm. uh, those sort Some of fun, yeah. things. Uh, like uh, what? Where does that come from? Is it religion? Uh, is it... Uh, I'm not really sure where it came from. Like, uh, I'm not like a... I want to like big believer. Like, I'm someone like in the middle. But I feel like, you know, like the level of education might be behind the fact that, you know, some people don't really, you know, for everything that they don't understand, you know, they call it witchcraft, you know. Mm-hmm. Like, um, yeah. So I think that might be like the major problem. Like, um you know, because people don't, you know, they don't know about science, they don't know about technology, you know, like maybe modern medicine and other kind of treatment and, you know, technology that might be out there. So sometimes they they try to find some weird explanation, you know, to the thing that they're not understanding, you know. So I feel that's part of the problem, you know, like... Um, I think just like in general, the continent and the country, you know, they need more education because 
in most families, you know, where people actually uh, get educated, we don't have a lot of those cases. Usually, it's uh, families that are kind of uh, lower, lower class and middle, you know, sometimes that are usually affected by those kind of problems, you know. And there is also, uh, you know, the religious influence, you know, church influence on the people. Because sometimes what happens is that you go to a church, the pastor will be praying for you, and then you will say that he sees a problem in your family. There's a trouble, something disturbing the peace or the wealth, you know, the well-being of the family. And then after that, it's going to point to a person, you know, who actually going to become a victim of that prophecy. Because the person gets kicked out without, you know, uh, without really uh, being given any chance to, you know, I don't know, to disprove the thing, if it can <laughs> even be disproven. Yeah, so it's just a little bit weird. I just feel like education is something that can solve this problem, you know, and also maybe some uh, policies by the government to kind of limit, you know, what some things that the church may say to people, because I feel like it's a little bit overboard for a church to tell someone that they have a uh, witch kid who is only, you know, five years old, six years old. Yes. Yeah. And, you know, for people actually do that, I think that they have really wicked and disturbed mind because for a father or a mother to abandon your son based on the assumption of a pastor, you know, saying that, you know, the, the kid is affected by witchcraft, you know, I think it's a little bit crazy in my opinion. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. Um, well, how's the education improved or maybe not in the past few years? Uh, I would say like from the few um, improvements that I've seen is that I know that uh, primary school, public primary school, uh, actually became free. Oh, nice. Yeah, since uh, 2007 or something like that, after we, we've had uh, our first election. So that was kind of a, a form of improvement, you know. That was, but was that when Kabila first came to power? Or no, was... after the first elections. I see, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so pretty much after the five period, five years of transition that we've had with him, you know, after the death of um, his father. Yeah, so I would say that was kind of an improvement, but um, I, w- um, I wish they also did, you know, improvements in such a way that they maybe increase collaboration with foreign universities, you know, and maybe provide um, scholarship for people back home actually showcase like some kind of uh, uh, you know um, uh, um, intellectual uh, how, how would you say that in English like they showcase some kind of uh, intelligence have more exposure to those educated people so that people can aspire to be mm-hmm. yeah. the TED Talks that they have yeah. here yeah so just get to have you know more people go outside so they can experience cultures from outside and try to bring a little bit of that, you know, maybe the work ethic, how school system work in other countries, you know, see what works, you know, the bus system, the government, and all those, you know, things. I think that uh, by doing that, it will really improve, you know, the way we operate in the country. Because in a sense, there's still a certain mindset, you know, kind of keeping certain um, part of the country, you know, from developing, you know, and becoming better. You know, because we've pretty much been, uh, been in the same mindset, you know, since the independence, you know. It's all, you know, people are not really willing, you know, to put in the work, you know, to have the country go forward. Even the work ethic at the workplace is not really, 
you know, post, you know, we don't really have, you know, like when I came here, you know, whether you're at school or you want to uh, have a job on campus, you go through a series of different trainings, you know, regarding uh, sexual harassment, regarding, you know, work ethics and all those things. But back home, we don't really talk much about those kind of things at the workplace. You know, you just go, you get your job and you get some training, but mostly related to how the business works. You know, and things like that. I mean, and even just on the level of empowerment, you know, like coming here, I notice that when you go to a shop, you know, the worker or the salesman, you know, has some level of power to actually get to help you at the moment when you need help. But back home, it's usually only one person making a decision for the whole company. So an employee by himself. So if he was in a moment and uh, subjected to a certain question that he wasn't able to answer, so he will need to always contact his, uh, the upper management oh. to provide him with the solution at that moment. So they're not given that kind of so liberty it's, to... It's systematically yes. slow. Mm-hmm. Systematically slow, yeah. A lot of blocks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of blocks, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's very, um, you know, very slow in many ways and kind of uh, a little bit backward thinking, you know, the way things operate. You know, and um, even like in terms of management, like a lot of our system is not informatized, so we still rely like a lot of on paper, you know, which I believe is one of the reasons why corruption is at at uh, at such a high level in the Congo, just because, you know, a lot of the things are not saved in computers. And when you have a piece of paper, you know, it's really easy to take it out or change information because there's no... Uh, you know, there's no um, communication between maybe the different department by computer. You know, it's a really ancient type of system, you know, which um, has like um, a lot of um, maybe gaps, you know, where money can escape, you know, and money can be used, you know, to do some things in the dark, you know. How, how much of it is digitized so far? Not, if at all. Not much, you know. Mm-hmm. Like... Uh, Professors at public schools that still paid mostly in cash, you know, they don't have bank accounts. Really? Yeah, even um, a lot of the federal employees, same. And uh, like I said, the different departments of government, they don't really communicate by computers. Not many people are used to communicate by email, you know, writing a report and doing all those things. So everything is written on paper most of the time. And because of that, a lot of information get lost. A lot of different things happen, you know, and that's not good. Yeah, it's not good at all. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, it makes it possible for a lot of... Mm-hmm. I don't want to call it... I don't want to call it anything. Let's move on, because I don't want to make a statement on this. No. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, like, yeah, if they could solve that problem, at, uh, you know, it might help, you know, with corruption and also to save, you know, more of the money, you know, maybe at... Uh, at the borders, you know, when product come in, you know, they can we can have like a better kind of inventory of what actually comes in and goes out and just in terms of transparency, you know, so we know what the government is actually doing with the money, you know, that it's receiving. So how mm-hmm. how much is the cell phone penetration in Congo in general? At least in the middle um, of I would say that cell phones are becoming, you know, like more prominent, like in Africa, you know, especially since Android phones 
uh-huh. are becoming you know you know less expensive you know they're more affordable and people can get access to them and even for the people you know like people uh, who have like really simple phones you know because of the different problems you know that we face in Africa like we don't have Wi-Fi everywhere you know we don't have 4G I think we're just starting to get 3G in some part of the country so because of that like a lot of the phone companies have started to improvise you know to kind of uh, you know utilize you know the um, the resources that we have so for example we have some kind of you know because people don't have bank accounts some cell phone companies came up with some form of um, I wouldn't say cryptocurrency, but it's kind of work in the same way. So you can have money that you put in your phone and it's kind of become your bank account. You can send money to family members. So you just need to go like to a small shop. Even when you don't have a smartphone, you know, when you still have like those really old Nokia. So your number become like your debit, debit number. And you get to use that to, you know, receive and send money to pay at some places. And people have been like really... uh, creative you know about those things because since we don't have you know really fast internet some people don't have apps so people had to improvise to actually find the system that will work for everyone yeah yeah i've heard heard about this happening Mm -hmm. Uh, i mean indonesia also has Mm -hmm. a large population of people using digital wallets Mm -hmm. Um, because like a lot of people still don't have credit cards Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's hard to get a credit score. I don't think there's a credit credit mm-hmm. rating system. Yeah, uh, that's as formally mm-hmm. institutionalized as in the mm-hmm. U.S. Yeah, um, so they've used this and it's actually helped grow their mm-hmm. economy really, really, really fast. So I, mm-hmm. I, I hope that's the case for Congo as well. Yeah, and like as mm-hmm. as as messed up as things are, mm-hmm. um, it it does look, look look like there's a glimmer of hope. Yeah, uh, mm-hmm. at least. Yeah, I think, like, you know, with years passing, you know, I think, like, the terrain in Africa, you know, just in general, was start changing, you know, just with time, you know, even if there's no major kind of revolution happening, I feel like slowly as the old regime is going out, you know, like, new people will come up, you know, with better ideas and maybe also be, you know, caramel about the people and actually get to do something that would actually help the continent, you know, move forward, you know. Yeah, so I think that those things, you know, are going to be happening, even if they're happening slowly. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. (laughs) Don't go anywhere. Uh This is their minds (laughs) talking about Congo. (laughs) Uh (laughs) I'm just going to pause it really quick. All right, and we're back. (laughs) Oh, literally a two-minute break. Um, Oh, but we, we still do need to go back to... Where oh, we yeah, left off, where we, left we off, went yeah. off on that tangent. Mm-hmm. So, the elections have been delayed for half a year. Mm-hmm. Um, the most popular mm-hmm. opposition party leader mm-hmm. has passed away. Mm-hmm. Um, there's uncertainty, instability mm-hmm. uh, rising up in the country. I don't. I'm not trying to sensationalize the problem, mm-hmm. uh, but how how do you think? Uh, Kabila would do if he were to be re-elected for a third year? Or, don't answer that. Um, what do you think Kabila ought to do? So or any president uh, ought to do? In this situation that we're in right now? Yeah. Yeah, so I feel like um, the best thing for Kabila to do, I think, is to, you know, get to organize elections this year and get to have someone else, you know, be our next president. 
because I feel like without this um, uh, you know situation happening we won't really be having like a real democracy situation because we've been having the same leader and unless we actually have someone else coming up you know and people actually getting used to the feeling of you know democracy having a change it's gonna be really difficult what's it like when you go to vote I don't mm-hmm. well, when, when did you come to the US? Uh, I came to the US in 2012 September 2012 so you were still under 18 or you were just 18? yeah I was 18 yeah getting close to 18 or something or past 18 I think have you been through the voting process? yeah yeah uh, I've been through that and uh, you know it's um, it's a system that is not perfect of course because like I said again, you know, like uh, going back to technology, like a lot of the system is not inform. So we don't have uh, computers and a lot of the information is not digitized, you know. So a lot of people, you know, maybe they flee the war or they came from a certain region. People don't have birth certificate. They're not registered in the government system. The government doesn't really know what the true age is. And therefore it's also really easy to actually get to create people that do not exist because we don't have a database of the people, you know. So that is kind of really problematic. Like when I went to to do my registration, I don't remember being asked, you know, about my birth certificate. They've never looked at it. They've uh, never really done any kind of background search, you know, to make sure that the information I provided was true. But then again, I guess that it's really hard, you know, for certain region, you know, because of the wars and things like that, to actually have documented people. Yeah. And so none of these things are digitized, like the government uh, database people? No, unless like you have a passport or something. Because if the information was also digitized, you know, like if, you know, like even when you have, when you have a driver's license, it doesn't mean that you can vote in my country. You need to have a specific ID that's, is a voting ID. Is a voting ID. Oh. You know. And, um, yeah, so I don't know what happened to the database that they had before. I don't know if people get updated into that database. You know, so it's a little bit weird for me. Um, I, I, I'm not really sure how that system works, you know. Because many people fake their age. Many people fake their names. Some people register themselves more than once. You know, we had different kind of cases like that. Yeah, and I'm sure people that don't even exist could yeah. be voting as well. Yeah. Not always a temper. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, it's always the case though, like, mm-hmm. what a developing nation. Yeah. It's just, even when it's developed. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a very kind of um, complicated process. But just going through that, so the information they asked me, you know, I had to provide fingerprints, uh, my fingerprint, and you know, like this fingerprint was not digitized, so I had to put my finger in the ink, and then put it on the paper, and then after that, only they would take a picture of me and type the information on the computer, and then give me like a really simple paper, which is really, uh, it's easily washable, you know, if you put it in a washing machine, it's gone, it's not like a solid card or something, it's pretty much like a paper, with this plastic around it to preserve it, oh, and it's do something. You have it uh, I don't have it here. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and I left it home. But yeah, but that's pretty much like how they look like. It's really, really basic, really easy to fake, you know. And uh, yeah. So, mm-hmm. I guess. 
I mean, I'm biased, and there's a reason I would say this, obviously, but, like, uh, technology seems to be one of the big frontiers Mm -hmm. for Congo to develop and move forward, Mm -hmm. and not just catch up with the rest of the world, but to, Mm -hmm. like, actually be on level playing um, economically. Yeah, and, like, yeah, like I said, I think it's an important component, you know, for the for the country to start moving moving up because without proper technology, like the different institutions won't be able to communicate, you know, properly. They won't be able to, you know, kind of um, analyze and follow what's actually going on, you know, tracking people. I mean, not tracking people. Tracking <laughs> people. <laughs> <laughs> not tracking people, but making sure that, you know, that, you know, people actually exist. Like we have a database of people. You know, and <laughs> still <sounds like laughs> no, like here, like when you go like to the, like when you go to the DMV once, you know, like yeah. they they're gonna have your information even next time when you go. You're in the system, right, you know. Right, right. But for us, unless you get a passport, the you're not exactly in the system. How do you become eligible to get a passport? You have to be a certain type. You of have person. to apply, but even the passport is one of the most expensive passports in the world. Really? I believe we pay like 160 something dollars to get a passport. What? Yeah. It's a pretty, um, I mean, pretty expensive process. So and how much freedom does that allow you to move around within Africa? Uh, well, all you the need other financial things. You still, you need a visa to go to many countries, that's what I would say, yeah. Um, yeah, even like within Africa. When you go, when you want to go to neighboring countries, and things like that, so you will need visa for many places. See, yeah, see, this is something that's that's new to me. Mm-hmm. Um, I knew Congo and the U.S. didn't have the best in terms of diplomatic mm-hmm. relationships, but even within Africa, it's yeah. difficult for yeah to to move around. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You've been to South Africa, though, right? Yeah, yeah. I've been there, but yeah, even for there, like, you still need to get a visa. Yeah. And you need to renew it, you know, a few times. I think my sisters, um, two of my sisters are studying there, and uh, they, I think they renewed this, um, the visa, you know, like, two times already, you know, for studying there. Wow. And, yeah, but, you know, like, I haven't renewed my visa since I came here, so I think it's maybe even a little bit more complicated to be a student there than it is here. Yeah. And so that's another thing is that the people within the Congo, mm-hmm. specifically Lubumbashi, mm-hmm. where it's uh, the educated population, mm-hmm. uh, when they leave to study abroad, mm-hmm. how many of them come back to become these government workers, to mm-hmm. become the entrepreneurs, mm-hmm. the, the scientists? To carry the country forward. Or the people that are left. Yeah, because the incentive yeah. is not there. <laughs> You'd have to be really altruistic. Yeah. And even if you were mm-hmm. uh, like a prophet or something, yeah. it would be difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I feel like uh, one of my friends and I were talking about this uh, specific issue, you know, today. And it's like, um, it's kind of um, ironic that when many of us are here, you know, we talk about all the goods that we want to do for the country. And things like that and I'm pretty sure people that came before us they probably also kind of did the same you know but then when they go back home you know like sometimes it makes me wonder you know like how can you go in a country you know like you go to study to Europe you go study to the US and other countries you know in Asia like you know uh, Korea Taiwan China 
India and then you go back home and you see all the problems that the country is facing and instead of trying to change them and make them, I mean, make your country look more like the countries that you visited, you just embrace the system that was already in place and keep doing the same thing that people have been doing since the independence, you know. Because the mentality right now is still like the mentality of the old regime, you know. The same thing we had during the Mobutu administration. The same kind of thinking, you know. People are really attached to power. And based on what you see, you know, they're not really interested into the development or the betterment of the, the country. So, you know, which kind of make me th uh, think, and also like my friend said it yesterday, you know, we're like a little bit part of the problem, you know. Because for us, um, being um, in the U.S., you know, like coming from my friend and also um, I do agree with him, like for us, because of the fact that we kind of come in a sense from a privileged, you know, environment, you know, a lot of the things that are happening in the country, you know, I may complain about and my friend may complain about, but in the end, we're not affected as much as the people that are actually living in the country, all the poor people, you know, the currency, uh, you know, might go down, you know, we might have like different fluctuations and inflations and things like that, but it won't exactly affect us as much as the other people. Like when we have, when we don't have electricity at home, we have a, um, I don't know, you call it machine to have, a generator. yeah, we have a generator to have the electricity back. We have a car to go pick up water at some places when there's no water. But for many people, they have to walk miles, they have to do something. So I feel like maybe that, you know, certain people living in a certain bubble don't really understand, you know, the difficulties that people actually have to live with every single day, you know, and just going through that. So I don't know if that's, you know, what's also kind of part of the, the problem, you know, is that we become a little bit complacent and also kind of, we're not as aggressive about changing the system because in a certain sense, like some of us are still profiting from that system, you know. So I think that's my also be part of the problem. And it we also take, you know, a lot of uh, change in mentality, you know, from our part, you know, to be able to actually make real change. Because um, talking about the future, you know, in a sense, we are the future because we're the ones that are studying here, um, you know, outside of the country seeing what's happening outside, you know, the different innovations, how they're pushing, you know, for the students, you know, to be the best of the, themselves, you know, to be competitive in a healthy way, you know, and all those different things. Like, we're the one who get to see that. You are the one who get to go to, you know, renowned companies and get to, get to see, you know, the work ethic and how people get to work into those companies. So I feel like we have... Uh, really massive responsibility, you know, to kind of bring those values home, you know, but just also to get back to the point that you said, you know, some people, you know, maybe might be discouraged, you know, by the fact that certain majors are not really relevant back home. Like some people feel that, okay, if I do computer science uh, in the U.S., for example, and then go back in the Congo, you know, you might end up fixing radios <laughs> for the rest of your life. But... Yeah, but then I feel like even uh, from that thinking, I feel like because people are not, you know, are not maybe thinking outside of the box, you know, because they're expecting the institutions to be ready for them when they're the one that actually 
in a sense I don't I'm not saying that they are forced to go do that but they kind of have a certain responsibility to go and make the problem that they see in the field and actually make it become better you know like when they see that computer science or that field is not taken seriously you know why not bring that innovation that the people need because when you look at countries like Rwanda and certain countries like Cameroon you know they're starting to have incubators they're actually pushing technology forward and those people that are doing that are native from that country you know they went outside and they saw things that other people were doing and they brought those uh, philosophies back home and I think that maybe that's something that is uh, prevalent with you know a lot of English countries I mean countries that were colonized by uh, England, you know, a lot of those English countries in terms of uh, uh, innovation and also in terms of philosophy, they kind of behave differently from countries that were colonized by France, you know, because when you look at a lot of the French countries, they still have, um, you know, certain problems that English countries don't have, you know, even when you talk about banking system, you know, it's really hard for one to borrow money in the French uh, French system. By French system, I mean like uh, African French, you know, like when you go borrow money, usually you get like a really high rate, you know, above 10%. And it's really impossible, you know, for many people to actually get to reimburse when you borrow from, from those banks. So, you know, at the end, those banks just end up not lending money to any, any uh, person. Yeah. But, uh, it's a really, um, I mean, complicated situation. <laughs> um, I yeah, I I really hope that mm -hmm. there's a possibility that more people mm -hmm. that get to see um, the world outside mm -hmm. and get that education, the privileged people, yeah, the people in a sense that are more comfortable, mm -hmm. do come back and and help the country for the next generations to come because mm -hmm. without those people, it's yeah. It's gonna be the same kind of things going on, you know. The same people gonna be in power because what can happen at the end of the day is that the people in power today they're gonna be pushing the children. The children gonna take over, and if the children also have the same mentality as their fathers, we're gonna keep going into the same kind of system, you know. Because um, you know, not to criticize the opposition and other things, you know, happening. Like when you look for me, like when I was analyzing a little bit of the politics, when I was looking at the UDPS, for instance, you know, it was kind of hilarious for me or kind of funny in my mind that when you have a political party, you know, it's kind of become like an empire, you know. And it's, it's, it's the case in many political parties, whether we're talking about the majority or the opposition, you know, you have a person in the party, the president, of the party and therefore it means that they have to run for president mm. you know they don't have that system where you actually get to elect a front runner you know for those parties you're president you're the one who has to run all the time and what happens usually is that when they retire or when they die the kids take over you know without election without considering the people that have been in the party for so many years you know and I feel that also is kind of uh, making a lot of the political parties like really weak because they don't have like a driving philosophy they mostly you know the I think that opposition in the country just mean like being opposed to everything they don't actually have a core philosophy of what what they stand for you know 
here even if you know sometimes democrat and republican can kind of be similar in a certain sense but there is a certain differences in the policies you know the way they view certain issues you know like you know the, the size of the government you know the way the government should be handled you know and all those things those are the platforms of discussions here in france and other countries but back home we don't really have like you don't really know what someone stands for like when you hear it the best you know it's just a kelly but you don't know what's the core message when you hear you hear the majority presidential you hear the party of kyungwa kumwansa you know it mostly the face that you see and not so much the message so there is a lot of partisan that attach the image of the leader instead of the message or the core uh you know ideology of the party you know and it's just contained within the family yeah it is contained within the family you know the uncles yeah. you know all those things so the twin things have been kind of the same for so many years you know because mobutu was there oh. he left and then now it's kind of the same thing all over you know i'm not saying that we have the same kind of dictatorship but the same mentality is still there you know people are in uh the government is mostly dealing with politics because they want a position and not so much because they want to help the people you know a lot of the things is about position like even when you look right now you know the ministers we like our government got bigger than it was because we have more ministers now and all this is because you know people want power and usually when they get power they won't talk as much because now they're in a position where they get you know a revenue they get money and they get to have some kind of power and that kind of what kind of keep you know the same thing you know going on forever you know for a very long time once you get that little taste of yeah. it takes a <laughs> yeah. powerful person to mm-hmm. not go crazy from the mm-hmm. the power um i think that's a good place to end mhm yeah uh, thanks man yeah no worries man <laughs>